where out of his innermost being shall flow springs of living water. I that down too low, yeah. just like. I didn't understand the full meaning and import of that verse until I received the baptism in the Holy Spirit and began to know what that flowing out was. It thought the Word of God talks about praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And Beverly and I want to sing for you, Springs of Living Water. I thirsted in the barren land of sin and shame, and nothing satisfying there I found. But to the blessed cross of Christ one day I came, where springs of living water did abound. Drinking at the springs of living water, happy now am I, my soul they satisfy. Drinking at the springs of living water, a wonderful and bountiful supply. How sweet the living water from the hills of God It makes me glad and happy all the day Now glory, grace, and blessing Mark the path I trod I'm shouting hallelujah every day Drinking at the springs of living water Happy now am I, my soul they satisfy Drinking at the springs of living water A wonderful and bountiful supply I will pour water on him who is thirsty I will pour floods upon the dry ground Open your heart for the gift I am bringing While you are seeking me Come and be found Drinking at the springs of living water Happy now am I, my soul they satisfy Drinking at the springs of living water A wonderful and bountiful supply A wonderful and bountiful supply Might I begin this message tonight by saying going to be an unusual sermon because I'll not be able to finish it tonight. <laughs> but I want to speak on the subject, learning to run. Learning to run. 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. I told Brother Ed Ward not too long ago that I didn't feel very badly about preaching series. I've never been able to compete with one pastor of Park Avenue Covenant Church in Minneapolis. Now you just stop and think about this. He preached 54 sermons on the book of Jude. I think there's some 20 verses in the whole book of Jude and he preached 50 some sermons on it and they tell me that every one of them was a classic classic sermon, just an outstanding preacher. And uh, I've never gone that far now. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. And by the way, this was written only to Christians, those who are born again. Know ye not 
that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Now what are those next two words? So run. Paul's encouraging Christians to learn how to run, isn't he? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Talking about Christians now. He gives us a comparison there. They do it, but we an incorruptible crown. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. Now the contemporary term for that would be, I don't shadow box. I don't go around swinging my arms in the air just for nothing. I realize I'm in a struggle. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, my, I myself should be a castaway. Now that word in the Greek is adokamos, which means I be disapproved or set aside as unfit, not be able to receive the reward that I have for me. Now the important thing that I notice here is he says that we should run the race of our Christian walk. He's, he's giving a comparison. He said, you know how people who are in preparing for the Olympics back in that day for the games, how they prepare themselves, they deny themselves, they will not overindulge in any area, they'll restrict themselves from many privileges that most people can do it, uh, could, could participate in. They would struggle, they would strain, they would exert themselves to the very furthest limit. And he said that when they got all through, they'd get a little crown of oak leaves. And they would soon fade and go away. And he said, now just stop and think about it. If they would work that hard to run one race and win it to get a little corruptible crown, how much more should you and I learn how to run and to restrict ourselves and to discipline ourselves and to put ourselves under that we might receive an incorruptible crown. Paul's telling us here that if we're going to have heaven and the joys of heaven and the rewards of heaven, we're going to have to run for it. As we read the epistles time and time again, and as you read the apostles and the teachings of our Lord, it's just indicative of the fact that as when a person becomes a Christian, they're on the opposite team. And the devil and the flesh and sin and death and everything else is going to chase us. And that's why Paul says, begin to flee as a Christian. Begin to run. And he doesn't mean running in defeat. He means running toward the goal that God has set before us. Now, when he speaks of running here, he's not talking about ordinary running. Now, I've seen some men run down the road. And I, we have a man in our neighborhood that runs down the road every day. And he has a dog running alongside of him. Now, I've watched him run for four and a half years. And I don't see that it's done him one bit of good physically, but his dog is the slimmest dog in the whole community. <laughs> he has run. He just kind of jogs along. And his waist doesn't look like it's one bit smaller. If anything, it's bigger. So something's happening. Besides his running, he's not doing the rest of that. what was required to do what he really is trying to do in the goal, in, in the, reaching his goal. But here it's talking about the very fastest kind of running. It speaks of fleeing. Now, do you know the difference between just running and really running? I could give you a couple of examples. One of them was when I was out in Colorado, we were out hunting. The men took me out hunting. I had never gone jackrabbit hunting before. Now, if you ever think you've gone hunting for rabbits when you go out for cottontail, you've never really gone rabbit hunting until you try to hunt for a jackrabbit out in the open plains. 
I used to go with my shotgun as a boy and go out rabbit hunting for cottontail and uh, they virtually got to a place where they just could not get away from me. I could spot them before they'd get off the ground, get started running, and I could nail them one after another. I'd go through there and in a few minutes I'd have them because I knew their speed, I knew exactly how to lead them, and I'd get them. But I went out jackrabbit hunting one day. And one of them, we had dogs just out ahead of us, and the, pretty soon one, somebody said, there goes one. And I was just following along with a rifle because you got the wide open field. You can take time and kind of pace that thing. And the dog was going as hard as he could behind that jackrabbit. And the jackrabbit knew what kind of a dog it was. And he just was bloom, 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 just loping, you know, very slow lope. And he was moving like to me was very fast. I didn't know if I'd ever get close to him with that rifle. But then all of a sudden somebody else shot first and it hit right behind that rabbit. And then I knew the difference between running and fleeing. That rabbit laid his ears back and zoom, he was across that field. All you could see were just puffs of clouds of dust behind him. And that dog just looked bewildered. That rabbit was completely gone. My father said he used to hunt with two dogs, black dogs, when he was a boy. And these dogs had learned to run one behind the other and run very hard, as hard as they could. And the jackrabbit would be just loping, but pretty soon, just for fun, he'd turn sideways. And that's when he'd make his mistake. Because these two black dogs learned one to follow the other. And when he would turn, the other one would have him before he could get away. But one day, his friend went out with him, and some of these jackrabbits were used to the black dogs. And this friend had two greyhounds. And it said when these dogs got up a jackrabbit and started off running, all of a sudden the jackrabbit started his lope, and the next thing he felt was the hot breath of a dog on his tail. And it said that rabbit all of a sudden quit running and started fleeing. I mean, he laid his ears back, and it was a real race. One other example of the difference was when I was a teenager. I used to run around with a boy named Junie Cook. Fat little fella, cute as could be, nice and pudgy and big fat cheeks, dimples, cute little guy, but he just couldn't move very fast. I didn't think. But I remember one particular night, he had one special fear, and that was a fear of dogs. But I used to run with, I could outrun him any day of the week, twice on Sunday. I was thin and could, I, was, I learned how to be fast because I lived in a neighborhood of pretty rough guys. And I learned how to be exceptionally fast. But that night, two other fellows with me, Junie Cook and one other fellow and I, were walking down this road right down the ditch in Nebraska. We didn't have sidewalks in most places. We just had a ditch. And as we were walking along in the dark night, and the next light post was up, oh, I suppose, two-thirds of a block, and the one behind us was off, all of a sudden we heard a chain straightening out and a lunging dog and a rah, right behind us, a big old German shepherd snapped at the end of a chain right behind us. I took off running hard and behold there was a huge mass of body running ahead of me and outpacing me all the way down the street. Junie Cook was no longer running, he was fleeing. I never saw that much body move so fast in my life. Now I'm just emphasizing that because that's exactly what the Word of God is talking about here when it says to flee. It means you don't mess around with it. You get out of there just as quickly as you can. And there's a lot of Christians that learn, need to learn how to flee from some of these biblical principles of which it describes here. The first one is a run of anticipation I noticed in the Word of God. The New Testament is full of those who came running to Jesus or were brought quickly to Jesus in anticipation that He was going to meet their needs. You remember the story in the 19th chapter of Luke of a little fellow by the name of Zacchaeus? 
Zacchaeus was wanting to see the Lord Jesus, and the Scripture says that he came up to see him, but the reporters were all around him. He says he couldn't get to Jesus because of the press. And so he ran down the road ahead of Jesus and climbed up in a tree and sat there waiting for him to come by. You'll get it after a while. Some of you that haven't heard it before, others have heard it time and time again. But uh, the Scripture says he ran up to a tree, a sycamore tree, and climbed up in the sycamore tree, and evidently the branch went out over the road, and he thought, now I'll be able to sit up here and see Jesus. It said he knew that the Lord was going to pass by. And as Jesus came walking under the tree, here sat this little short fellow up there thinking, boy, I'm above everyone now, and now I can just inconspicuously see Jesus. And by the way, Zacchaeus, being a man of little stature, was like a little Caesar, evidently, because he was the ruler or the leader of the publicans, tax collectors, a very wealthy man, the Scripture says. And when Jesus came under that branch, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to your house for tea today. I'm going to go have lunch with you today. The scripture says he hurried down. And of course, immediately, the evangelical, conservative, charismatic brethren got very upset with Jesus because he was mingling with sinners. He said, well, this man's a robber and a thief, and he's, he's just a, a sinner. And Jesus, of course, at the, the end of this little discourse said that that's why he came, to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come for the good people. He came for the bad people. He wanted to save them. Well, the scripture says that when Jesus went to that man's house. Afterwards, Zacchaeus made a statement. Turn to it in, in Luke, the 19th chapter. Luke, the 19th chapter. Verses 1 through 10. Verse 3 tells us he was seeking Jesus and that he was a little of stature. And verse 4 tells us he went up into the sycamore tree Verse 5 tells us that Jesus told him to come down, and then he went, he said he, and said, verse 6, he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be the guest of the man that's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Now here was a man who ran to Jesus in a run of anticipation, expecting that Jesus would have an answer for his life. Someone that was very wealthy, but his life was very empty. And as he came, something happened in his life. That next verse is very interesting to me. It says, And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. In the Living Bible, Jesus says, I mean, it says it this way, This shows that salvation has come to this house today. And Jesus was saying, when a man comes and flees to me, if he's really found what I have to offer, he'll change his way of life. There'll be a difference in his life, like Larnell was talking about this morning. You cannot go on walking the same path you walked before once you've run to Jesus and found what he has to offer you. The next one I want you to notice is in Mark 10. Mark 10, another one came with a run of anticipation to the Lord Jesus. Mark 10, verses 46 through 52. By the way, that when he talked to Zacchaeus was when he came through Jericho. And this was also, evidently this happened just before he came to Zacchaeus. He met another man by the name of Blind Bartimaeus. For even the son of, excuse me, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, 
Timaeus, excuse me, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. Here was a cry of anticipation. I mean, he could have screamed at anybody and it would have done him no good. But he knew that if he could reach the ear of Jesus that Jesus would meet the need in his life. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they came to the blind man, saying to him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he casteth away his garment, rose, and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. Another translation has it, I want to see. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, my faith. Is that what it says? Oh, there's something involved in our part. I thought it was my faith. No, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. One other example of a run of anticipation is in Luke, the fifth chapter. I'd like for you to notice it. Now, here was a case where it wasn't the individual alone that was anticipating Jesus to do something. But it was those that were lifting him up and encouraging him and bringing him to Jesus. They came in great anticipation. Luke chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. Well, that's where I thought it was. Luke 5, 16 through 26. Yes, all right. Yes, that's right. I couldn't, it didn't look right. And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. And it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. That's a strange statement, isn't it? The only way I can explain this, and more and more I'm beginning to wonder about this, sometimes I'm in a service and God will say to me, pray for this person that they be healed. And I pray for them and they are healed. And more and more I see that where Jesus said, I, did, I don't do anything except the Father tell me. In fact, when he was at the pool of Siloam, think about this sometime, it was surrounded with invalid people. And Jesus just went to one and says, what do you want? Just to one. It's the same charges made against many that have the gift of healing today. They'll say, well, if you've got a gift of healing, why don't you go in the hospital and heal everyone? Jesus didn't always heal everyone. The scripture says that everyone that came to him, he healed. But I'm sure he walked by many people that weren't healed. There at the pool, it was indicative of that very thing. And here it says that in that particular meeting, the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Does it mean that sometimes it wasn't present? I don't know. I, but it's, it's enough to cause you to begin to question and dig into that and find out what it really means. In case you haven't gotten something to read about lately. And behold, men brought in a bed, a man which was taken with a palsy. And they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by that, what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down...
through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this that's, which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered, answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of God hath power upon earth to forgive sins, he said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy couch, and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them, and took up that whereon he lay, and departed out of his own house, glorifying God. Now, I just want to emphasize this one thought to you concerning this portion of Scripture. They came in anticipation, and they were willing to raise the roof to get a man to Jesus. And I could spend the rest of the evening just talking about that very fact, that here were some people who were so concerned about getting a man to Jesus, they're willing to take up a roof, tear up a roof off of a house just to get him down in front of Jesus. And there are many, many times we as Christians have opportunities to bring people under the hearing of the gospel or bring them to Jesus and we won't even put them in our empty back seat of our car. We won't even go across the street or down the block or across town to pick them up and bring them. Even if we know they have a hunger for the things of the Lord. Uh, I'm not going to emphasize that tonight. I'll let the Holy Spirit take that seed and let you think about that. But the interesting thing is when he came to Jesus, many of our liberal brethren today would have said, Jesus, first of all, you should have developed some type of a uh, welfare program for him so he could have some physical therapy and uh, some financial stability week after week and month after month for the rest of his life and be taken care of. And then once he is established that way, preach to him the gospel and get him straightened out. But Jesus emphasized here, and I want you to notice that, here came a man who physically was incapacitated. He couldn't even walk. He couldn't perambulate. He couldn't carry himself anywhere. And others picked him up and brought him to Jesus. And looking at that poor, miserable estate of that man on the floor... Jesus didn't even look, first of all, at his physical condition, did he? He looked at him and he said, Sir, thy sins be forgiven thee. He knew what was in the heart of that man. And he, first of all, relieved him of the sin problem. And I think we need to take a lesson from this. It doesn't make any difference how pitiful the condition or pitiable the condition may be of individuals on the mission field and other nations or here in the United States. I've had people come back from the foreign fields and say, oh, if you could just see the horrible conditions the people are in, we've got to feed them first, and we've got to do this first and that first, and then begin to preach the gospel to them. And I, I always think of this portion of Scripture. I think we ought to, when we're Christians, we ought to help everyone we can, but the most important thing that Jesus saw here was that that man needed to be, have his sins forgiven. And then when he got through with that, then he said, to show you that I have further authority, the, the authority to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk. One who came in anticipation, a run of anticipation, and he was met, and the Lord met his need. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the run of anticipation shows us here in the Scripture, first of all, if it's a need of salvation, if you'll come running to the Lord, he'll meet that need, and you can be saved. It shows us also if there's a need, if there's a blindness, whether it be physical or spiritual, you can say, Lord, open my eyes. You remember where the word said that after Jesus rose from the dead, he opened the scriptures to the disciples. He made them to understand scriptural principles that they didn't understand before. And I think we as Christians in these days really need to say, Lord Jesus, open my eyes to biblical scriptural principles that I can understand them. And that's why he sent the Holy Spirit to us to understand these things. 
if we're willing to, be, to see what He has for us. And then it doesn't make any difference whether it's physical or spiritual. When we come expecting the Lord to meet our needs, He will meet those needs for us. The run of anticipation. And then a run of separation, the Word talks us about. You see, every man being an emotional being has two separate poles. Like the earth has a north pole and a south pole and there's a magnetic pull to this. We have a positive and a negative aspect to all of our emotions. We, either, we can either love something desperately or we can hate something desperately. Uh, we can uh, apply that to Christian principles. If you really love Christ, the Word says, you'll hate what? You'll hate sin. You'll hate the world. If you love heaven, you'll hate hell and want nothing to do with either part of that part of it. If you love righteousness, you'll sever yourself away from sin. Jesus, time and time again, brings out this emphasis of separation on the part of the believer. He said you cannot serve two masters at once. He said if you do, you're double-minded and you're unstable in all of your ways. If you are not double-minded and if you'll do what you ought to do, you will abhor that which is evil and you'll cleave to that which is good. You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And if you do that, there's nothing left over for anything else. Contrary to the love for Jesus Christ. And he says, if you do this, you'll live. If you fail to do this, you'll be punished. Hebrews 12, 6. I think it's a verse that had a great impact on me as a young Christian. Of course, I could identify with it. I came from a home where I was raised on my mother's devoted knee and across my dad's determined knee. And as I've said before, he, he felt if I didn't have one spanking a day, I was sick. There's something wrong with me. But Hebrews 12 tells us very clearly that once we become Christians, we become sons of God. And as sons of God, God deals with us as sons, as our heavenly father. And he gives a proper pro projection of or image of what a father ought to be in his relationship to his son. Verse 6 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? In other words, he says, there just are no sons that I'm not going to chasten. If I can use the double negative, I can still remember, I believe it was in a Billy Sunday meeting one time. Billy Sunday was preaching on this thing. Of course, Billy Sunday was a very vivacious and lively preacher. He'd jump up on top of the pulpit and down on the communion table and off on the floor and down off the platform and back up off the platform. And he would be swinging his arms. I saw pictures one time of him preaching. He was like this all the time and he'd crouch down. He'd jump in the air. Very dramatic preacher. And uh, he was preaching on the subject of being chastened. And one lady came up to him with a great big feathery hat just dangling all around and dressed fit to kill and just diamonds all over her. And she said, I don't believe that. I live with pleasure and I live with all the enjoyment I want to live with. And God hasn't punished me yet. He said, we have no problem with that, ma'am. He said, Hebrews 12, 8 explains that perfectly. He said, let me read it to you. But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. He said, classify yourself. God's Word tells us as Christians that we don't dare fondle, we don't dare flirt, we don't dare fuss with sin, but lay our ears back and flee from it. Live a life of separation so the world can tell that there's something different about us. 
and it includes, this life of separation includes separating or fleeing from several things, and the Word tells us to flee from it. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 is the first fleeing Flee fornication. Every sin which a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth, sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The Word of God is replete with examples and illustrations of men who in the past who have ad adhered to this admonition from the Word and the blessing of God was on them. I think of Joseph when he was tempted with Potiphar's wife and he left his coat behind him and fled and was willing to go to prison because he would not. He said, I cannot do this thing before my God. But we also see others who failed to flee. I think of uh, Samson. Dr. E.J. Daniels, years ago, when we used to travel with him, he preached a sermon uh, on the evolution of sin. Or the, uh, no, the, the man who got his hair cut in the devil's barbershop was the name of his of his sermon, it was on Samson. And I can still remember his points very clearly. He said, first of all, in Samson's life, you see the evolution of sin. His mother and dad said, Samson, you must marry another Israelite, a girl, a daughter of, of Israel. You should not go outside of the camp of Israel to get a wife. And he rebelled against that and said, I think that the grass on the other side of the fence is greener and I'm going to go out. And he went out and found a Philistine for a wife, an unbelieving wife, a girl that he wanted to marry. And while he was there getting involved in those who did not believe in the same principles he believed in, playing in, his, in the devil's orchard, the men told him to sit down while they're waiting for the father-in-law to make up his mind and so forth, and he started gambling with them. And being a poor gambler, not having done too much of it evidently, he lost. And the evolution of sin progresses. When he couldn't pay his debts, he went out and stole a bunch of garments from different men, took them off of them. And then he came back in and paid his debts with these stolen garments and found out that his wife-to-be had been given to someone else. And this made him mad, and he went out and started burning the fields, and he killed people. And of course, then the Philistines wanted to get him, and the, that was the evolution of sin. Then the outcry of sin, Dr. Daniel says, was when he got his hair cut in the devil's barber shop. He finally ended up, first of all, going out just trying to find a, a Philistine wife, but as he progressed into deeper and deeper sin, he ended up with a harlot by the name of Delilah. And that's where he got his hair cut in the devil's barber shop. And he said the end of sin was when you find him blind and grinding in the mill, gristing out the grain that was the job of an animal because he wouldn't obey the Lord and wouldn't obey his parents in proper order and consequently was rebellious to the Lord. And then, of course, David, when he paused on the rooftop, the word... Of course, David should have been very, very busy. And I think that Bathsheba could have found probably a more proper place to bathe as far as that goes. But uh, in each case, with Samson and David, you find is a case they fondled with sin, they fooled around, they flirted with it, and disaster was the end result of the whole thing. Of course, that's absolutely true today. There are a lot of husbands and wives today in churches and out of churches that haven't recognized this requirement or this demand in the Word of God that says flee from these things. Get away from them as quickly as you can. And, and the only way I can describe it is to lay your ears back and get out of there. Don't have anything to do with it. 
And they get out into a job and just slowly they get friendly with someone else and it's just a very innocent thing. And before long they say, I don't know how I got into this mess. And it happened because if they had failed to quit gazing and teasing and having a little bit of fun and playing around harmless fun. But the Word says we can't take fire into our bosom without getting burned. It's impossible for us to do it. And so constantly I, I think it behooves us as parents and grandparents to encourage, first of all, the mothers, young ladies who are going to be mothers, to learn to be pure and learn to be chaste and learn to be very, very modest in their apparel and to flee immoral conversations. You know, it's amazing to me when you stand around, you hear the conversations of even women today. It's incredible. When you're standing in business places or shopping centers, I've leaned against buildings and posts from time to time waiting for the family or someone to hear someone in a conversation, to hear some of the immoral things they talk about and the, the looseness, moral looseness that they share with one another. And, and when you see the reading material available today and housewives sit down and read it. I remember a lady that, a young lady that went to Bible college and she met a young man while they were there and they, she wanted to get married instantly. He was younger than she and they got married and someone said afterwards that when you'd go to her house, all she had was TV magazines and movie magazines and true romance magazines and all these triangles and all the other love affairs that were there. And then she would sit and watch these TV serials all day while her husband is at work. She'd get her house cleaned up a little bit in the morning and then sit back. And when he'd come home, she'd been sitting there all day looking at that. And before long, he couldn't understand why their relationship was breaking down. And she started having imaginations of what he was doing when he was at work. And so she started working and that grew out of the area of imagination into reality and their home went on the rocks and became a disaster even though they had gone to a Christian Bible college and had studied the Word. You see, they didn't flee from the very appearance of evil and the end result was disaster in their homes. And as far as dads are concerned, I, I think that Christian fathers and Christian young men should make it a practice and a principle in their life. I'm laying down some basics here, but I think it's very important to avoid situations where you get involved in smutty stories or the passing around of filthy literature. And there are still many Christian people today that have magazines in their home that they'd be very ashamed to have if Jesus Christ were to come back today, I believe. And we have to be very careful what we allow into our eyes as well as our ears. And they get into compromising situations. We have to be very, very careful of this. The Word says flee from these things. If it weren't such a disastrous thing, we wouldn't have one of the worst records as far as marriages lasting that we have in the world today. What is it? One out of every two and a half marriages today end up in permanent separation. When I look at that, I realize the world and the devil does not have the answer with all their stories and all the immorality they want to dump out. But the Word says that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. One out of every two and a half of those who go to Sunday school and go to church and read the Bible and pray together, it's fewer than one in every 1,015 marriages end up in permanent separation. So if you men and women want to continuously keep your home in a much better odds position as far as having disaster in your home, being in church and praying together and studying the Word of God together is the answer. Peter said, seeing these things shall all be dissolved, what sort of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness? I'm not going to go on tonight. I, I feel that there's many, many important things that we need to see here. 
And I would encourage you to have your young people here for these Sunday evening services coming up. These are basic principles that they're going to need when they go back into grade school and high school today. I say that because the latest reports tell me that the problem with venereal diseases and dope are now reaching down into the grade school level from the age of eight on up. It's becoming an epidemic proportion. And I think that our young people need to realize that they're going to have to learn how to put on some running shoes and get away from these situations. God's Word, God's Word tells us what we must do and how we must do it. And I would encourage you to have our young people here. I say it again. Many times we practice what we preach and we don't preach what we practice. And our young people need to know why we do or don't do the things we do or don't do. And I believe the Word is very clear on these things for us as Christians to make a stand. Do you agree? Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we really want to know the mind of the Spirit in our lives. We really want to know what you have to say to us. Because we know that your word says, My people perish because of a lack of knowledge. I ask in the name of Jesus that we'll be knowledgeable in the Word. The Word says that we're to hide the Word away in our hearts, that we're to study it. And I pray tonight that as Christians we'll understand these principles, that there came a time when in anticipation we came to Jesus and He received us, and He washed us and He cleansed us. And then he says, come to me, and then he says, come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And you'll be my children, and I'll be your father. I pray that we'll not forget that the coming, after we come, it includes coming out and separating ourselves. Not isolation, but being insulated from the world, no longer a citizen of this earth, but citizens of heaven, pilgrims on this earth walking through, and others being able to tell that we've been with Jesus because we have love one for another and because our lives are different. That we're, we'll be ready to give an answer to anyone that asks us for the reason, uh, the reason for the hope that lieth within us. Let these things be very, very real in our lives, Lord. To realize how you want to speak to us and how you want to speak through us and how you want to minister to us and you want to minister through us. Lord, let our lives be pure and clean before you. Let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our strength and our Redeemer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, may I just ask tonight, is there one tonight that ought to be coming to Jesus with a run of anticipation, fleeing to him, realizing he said you must hate that which is evil and cleave to that which is good, and tonight you'd say, Pastor, I really have never given my life totally to Jesus Christ. But he said, I can't be double-minded, I have to, or I'll be unstable, and I want to give my life to the Lordship of Christ tonight. By the upraised hand, you'd say, pray for me. I need the Lord Jesus in my heart. Anyone? Everyone here Christians tonight? Everyone here know that if Jesus were to come tonight, you'd go and be with him? If so, then we ought to be praying right now and saying, Lord, help me fill my seats in the car.
Help me to reach out and be concerned about others around me. Scripture says we don't dare neglect this so great salvation which was given to us. I wonder what it's going to be like if we get to heaven and our neighbors around us all stand and say, you didn't even tell me. You didn't even tell me about Jesus and now I can't have eternal life. And you knew it. Can the Lord lay on your heart right now someone that you know that ought to be here, that ought to hear the Word? Again, I say we want to grow as Christians, but we don't dare forget those who are outside. We need to witness to them and share with them and encourage them and be excited about the things of God. I really believe that Sunday evening could be a real time of evangelism for Jesus Christ. But there's no sense fishing in a bathtub. We need to fish where there are fish. May God help us to encourage those that are non-Christians to come and drink of the living water. Father, in Jesus' name, we love you tonight. I thank you for every person that's here. I know that, I, I don't know of any here that do not really love you and want to serve you. Give us a Holy Ghost boldness to be able to share with others the Lord Jesus. Let them see in our lives such joy and such victory that they'll really hunger for the things of God. Lord, I pray tonight that as we go this coming week that, well, first of all, thank you that when we came in anticipation, you received us. But then, if there be areas where you want to speak to us concerning separation, that we'll say, Lord, I give myself to you, body, soul, mind, and spirit. Take possession. I want to live completely for you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, and with all my mind. And Lord, take us and make us to be fruitful. That's why you saved us, for fruit. You want, you want grapes. And I pray that we shall begin to produce more fruit than we ever dreamed possible in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me.
derelicts transformed, the, uh, the lights of hope put back into the eyes of a hopeless child. At the name of Jesus, hatred and bitterness turn to forgiveness and love. Arguments cease. I've heard a mother softly breathe that name at the bed of a child delirious with fever and seen that body grow cool and calm and quiet. I've sat beside a dying saint, her body racked with pain, who in those final fleeting seconds summoned her last ounce of strength to which the sweetest name on earth, Jesus, Jesus. Emperors have tried to destroy it. Philosophies have tried to stamp it out. Tyrants have tried to wash it from the face of the earth with the very blood of those who claimed it. Yet still it stands. And there shall be that final day when every voice that has ever uttered a sound, every voice of Adam's race, shall raise in one great mighty chorus to proclaim the name of Jesus. For in that day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. Ah, so you see, there is something about that name. It wasn't just mere chance that an angel that night told a virgin maiden his name shall be called Jesus. You know, there is something about that name. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. We're talking about learning to run. Learning how to run. 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, beginning with verse 24. By the way, only the citizens of heaven can do this running that we're talking about here. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one who is shadow boxing. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway or disapproved or set on the shelf, not being able to be used anymore of the Lord. 
Paul again was saying to us that the Christian walk is like a man in a race. Uh, I would to God that I could have the freedom to take all the time that I'd like to emphasize that one thing for those who think that the Christian life is just a, an easy believism. Just simply receive Him as your Savior and go on gloriously skipping through life and uh, come see, come sigh, maybe I'll serve the Lord, maybe I won't, maybe I'll do what He wants me to, maybe I won't. I just have got my ticket to go to heaven, and that's the most important thing as far as I'm concerned. Paul says, no, don't be fooled. He said, first of all, you're running to win, not salvation now. We're talking about your reward. When a person is genuinely saved, born again of the Spirit of God, they recognize that the Lord Jesus says that now... The things that we do in His name that He directs us to do and we're obedient in doing and the, the, the determination that we show to serve the Lord at any cost. And He says we must will to do the will of God. In doing so, we will receive a reward, a crown. Many times we as Christians forget the fact that salvation, going to heaven, isn't all there is about it. You know, the Word declares that there's going to be degrees of punishment in hell. Do you know that? says that there are going to be those that will be beaten with many stripes and there will be those that will be beaten with few stripes. There's going to be degrees of punishment in heaven. I really believe that the person who has sat in church week after week after week and year after year and heard it on the radio and everything and has rejected the gospel is going to have a much harder time, if you please. I believe, of course, the greatest punishment is to being out of this, the presence of God than the man who has never gone to a church, who has never heard the gospel who's never had opportunity to hear the gospel and yet had the witness in himself that there is a God. Because I personally believe that when a person goes to hell, eventually to the lake of fire, one of the greatest torments is going to be the fact that he's going to be, it's going to be like a tape recorder. They say we never once forget what we've heard. Everything you and I have ever heard, it's on, it's as, as it were, it's on a tape. We don't forget it, we just misplace it and we don't have our filing system straightened out so we can't recall it. But someone can say to you, do you remember such and such? And they'll say, no, oh, don't you remember when he said this? And oh, oh yeah, now, now I remember it. You didn't forget it, you just misplaced it. And one of the greatest punishments in hell, I believe, is going to be every sermon, every appeal, every scripture verse that we've ever heard repeated over and over and over and reminded every opportunity we had to receive Jesus and we didn't do it. I believe that's going to be some of the mental anguish of hell itself. Now he's saying, just as a person running a race, so ought we to be determined in our hearts to follow after the Lord. Go after it with the determination that we're going to have everything that Jesus Christ has for us. We're going to do everything that Jesus Christ has for us to do. Now I want to say, first of all, that every one of us won't have the same kind of race. Some of you might be good for the cross country. Some of you might be good for 25-yard dash. Some of you might be good for the relay, cooperating with others, but some of you will never be able to swim as far, but you may be able to swim a different stroke. As they say, different strokes for different folks. And that's the way it is with the Lord. He knows exactly why He's called us, and we should determine in our heart. Paul's saying here, just like that runner, we should determine in our heart to give Jesus Christ our very best. He says, now... Think about it. He said they don't eat certain things, they don't drink certain things, they don't stay up at night, they don't carouse, they don't run around. Everything they do is in, with temperance. Nothing to excess whatsoever. They make sure that they bring their body under. Oh, boy, 
But I love to have that great big double hot fudge nutty nutty with bananas and peanuts all over the top, but I won't. I do that and I'll lose the race. You see? Or that, that great big pizza with all that pop with it, you know, and all those delete. But I won't. If I do that, I'll lose the race. We had a young boy come to our house yesterday with the young people that had been in the Bible study. He's working out for football right now and he's running. And I looked at his ankles and his ankles had great big open raw sores on them. I said, what did you do? He said, I didn't pad my ankles well enough when I put the weights around them and ran. And he was running several miles a day with lead weights around his ankle. And getting up early in the morning, running several miles like that every morning. Plus lifting weights and eating all the food he can wait to get weight on to play football. And he goes to bed as early as he can at night and gets all the sleep he can and he takes extra vitamins and he takes all extra minerals he possibly can. He's working toward the goal of being a better football player this year and he just gives his all to it. Now Paul says that's exactly what we ought to do as Christians because he said those that run in the race, what are they going to get? A bunch of oak leaves. Platted on their head and by the time they get home and get to bed and get up the next morning they're already wilted. A corruptible crown. They work and they give and they struggle and they sacrifice to win. Paul says, now, if, just look at them. If they're willing to do that for a corruptible crown, what ought we to do for an incorruptible crown? He said, get in that race and so run that ye may obtain. Be temperate. He says, when you fight, know what you're fighting. Now, I know when I used to work out for Golden Gloves. When I was in high school, I used to be in Golden Gloves besides football. And they always would have us practice shadow boxing. And I'm sure you know what that is. You'd stand over by a wall and you would punch at the shadow. You wouldn't hit it. But you'd punch at the shadow just practicing a quick jab, either with the right or with the left arm, until you could develop it and it'd be just so quick that the guy wouldn't even see it coming. And we'd work and work. Paul says, I don't do that. I don't just beat the air. He said, I know that I'm in a literal struggle, and you better know it too. We're in a constant battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, against wicked spirits in high places. So he says, don't shadow box. Recognize that once you come to Christ, you have a race to run, you have a battle to fight, you have a, an old nature that has to be curbed. And he said, if it's worth it for the world to do it, how much more is it worth it for you and me to do it for our heavenly crown? You with me? That's what he's trying to emphasize. So no one can say, well, I've accepted Jesus. I'm going to sit back in my rocking chair and just rock till glory. That's not what he calls us to. He calls us to a struggle and to a victory. Well, I said first of all last week that we have a run of anticipation. Hebrews 11:6 tells us, He that cometh to God must believe that he is, anticipate that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. To the non-Christian, if they come asking for forgiveness of their sins and inviting Jesus Christ in their heart, and they come expecting it and repenting of their sins, the word says that they shall be forgiven. They should expect it. The night I got down and asked Jesus to come in my heart, I didn't say, I hope so, I think so. I said, if he said in his word, if I call unto him, he'll answer me. I received that, and I anticipated that Jesus would forgive my sins, and he did. And as Christians, the same thing when we call on him. We must believe that he hears us, and if he hears us, we have the petitions that we ask of him. 
with anticipation. The second thing was a run of separation. 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, verses 14 through 18. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18. And God hath raised up, excuse me, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 6. I knew something was wrong there. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. He said it's a run of separation. We just said, for ye are a chosen generation. I said frozen a while ago because when I was in school, uh, I can remember an evangelist coming and talking about the church of Jesus Christ in that day. He says, there's a verse that says, many are cold and a few are frozen. And that's what's happening in the churches today. Uh, but he said, really, it's many are called and a few are chosen. So, uh, but when we come to Jesus Christ, he says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And we can anticipate and expect that to happen when we come to him according to his word. Then he says, Come out from among them and be ye separate. Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. <clears throat> be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now read this, these next two verses with me. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. The Word of God says that we are to be a separate people. Now, I can remember a time when some people tried to teach me that meant isolated from the world. And that is not what it means. I can be in a group of people and still be separate from them. I can be a different kind of person. As a matter of fact, I find out that the darker the place, many times the brighter the light, if you're letting your light so shine. And so many times Christians want to be totally isolated when Jesus says we need to be insulated. Have that protecting wall of the Holy Spirit in our lives that radiates light and will not absorb the darkness. It's very necessary for us. And of course, the first thing I brought out last week was verses 18 and 20 of the same of 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. And that is, he said that we are to flee fornication. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 through 20. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now let me share with you this thought in this area that I did not share last week. First of all, he's speaking about actual fornication as far as physical relations are concerned. Now, I want to emphasize that so that no young people here will think that there's just because the mores of society have changed that God has changed his standard. He has not. God still demands purity on the part of his children. He still expects young people to know that fornicators will be judged. You'll pay a dear price for it. But I think we can also apply this into a spiritual fornication. Now, you say, how does that apply, Pastor Webb? Well... You know that the Word of God tells us that we are betrothed to Jesus Christ, aren't we? You know what it is? Are we married yet to Him? 
We're betrothed, aren't we? We're promised to Him. And what was the gift He gave us? What was the earnest, the down payment of the, of the uh, dowry, as it were, that He gave us? What is it? Hmm? The Holy Spirit. That's the down payment of what He's going to give us. And He said, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is the down payment that is given until the day of redemption, when He redeems us. And what's going to happen when Jesus comes for us? What's going to be one of the first things that's going to happen? Marriage supper of the Lamb. That's why He says that we, He's going to come for a bride without what? And without, without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle, isn't it? He's coming for a bride. And He is the what? Bridegroom coming for the bride. Now, if you can study the history of the marriage in the Jewish times, that was an exciting time. And when the bridegroom would come to the bride's house at midnight, about at midnight, and they would shout, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Excuse me, about 10 o'clock at night. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And the lights would all be lighted up around the house and he would come and he'd take the bride and the bride and the bridegroom would walk through the streets of the city and people would come out and cheer them and, and uh, encourage them and clap hands and, and sing to them as they're walking through the city with all the bridal party walking with them. They'd go back to the bride's home, uh, the groom's home, bridegroom's home. And when they would enter in, there would be festivities, there'd be party, there'd just be a time of rejoicing. And then at the close, there'd be the time of separation of the bride and the bridegroom and entering in to that marriage relationship. Well, now, that's exactly what's going to happen when Jesus comes again. He says He's going to come, and we'll hear the trumpet sound, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, and we'll be caught away in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and we'll be caught up to be with Jesus, and then we're going to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where all the rejoicing and everything... Oh, first of all, excuse me, after the judgment seat of Christ. We must remember that. That's when all the rewards will be given. Our crown. Everything that we've done in the flesh will be burned as hay, wood, and stubble. Everything we've done in the spirit will be as gold and silver and precious gems. And that will determine our reward. And we'll receive crowns and then we'll be clothed in a new garment. And we'll be presented as the bride before the Father. And be married to Jesus Christ, our bridegroom. Now, if we're just betrothed to Him down here, when we worship anything else other than our bridegroom, we're committing spiritual fornication, aren't we? You remember that God in the Old Testament kept talking about the fact that Israel was His wife? He kept saying, why are you committing adultery with me? Why are you doing this to me? Why do you run off a whoring after all these other gods and after all these other things? I am your husband. I have married you. I have brought you unto myself as my wife. Why do you do these things? In the New Testament, Jesus said, I am the bridegroom. You're the bride. We're betrothed. You said you wanted me as your, as your bridegroom. You said you loved me. And I sent my Holy Spirit as the dowry, the down payment of what you're going to receive. And I'm going to receive you in that day and it's all going to be consummated. But don't commit spiritual fornication in the meantime. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind. If you really love me, you'll do what I ask you to do. You'll keep my commandments. Don't commit spiritual fornication. That's what he's talking about. Flee it. Second thing under the run of separation is to flee idolatry, which is covetousness. 1 Timothy 6.10 1 Timothy 6.10 
I won't get into this area very deeply except just to share a, a bi biblical principle with you concerning covetousness or idolatry. It says, For the love of money is the root of all evil. And I want you to notice again, it does not say that money is the root of all evil. It does not say possessions are the root of all evil. God, as far as I know, God's Word never condemns material blessings that you possess as much as He condemns material blessings that possess you. You can have $2 in your pocket and be covetous, or 25 cents in your pocket and be extremely covetous. Or you can have $2 million in your pocket and feel the total responsibility of God on your life to do with that as God would direct you to do it. It's like Jean Lilly said, if God was against wealth, if God was against prosperity, the first thing you'd have to do would be move out. Because heaven, the streets of heaven are of pure gold. The walls are of different precious gems and jewels. So you see, God is not against prosperity, but he's saying the love of money to where money becomes the motivating force in your life or mine. That becomes evil. If the desire for money, the craving for money, the possession of money usurps our first place in our life, then that becomes wrong. And he says, flee anything that has anything to do with that. The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, what? What does it say? Oh, aren't they? Flee these things. Now again, you remember what I said about fleeing? He didn't say lope away from these things or, you know, jog away from these things. He said, lay your ear backs, burn rubber, and get out of there. Don't get close to it. What was this uh, fellow, who was this fellow spoke of Jesus 77? Oh, I can't think of his name. We heard the tape with our young people. Mike Warnke. Yeah, to put it in his words, he says, slap it and be for boogie and beat it. Get out of there. Don't play around with it. And that's what he's saying. We've got to be extremely careful as Christians that not that we have things, not that we possess, have possessions of ours, but that these things don't begin to possess us to where that's where our heart is. Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your what? Heart be also. So if our treasure is in earthly things, that's where our heart's going to be. If we start getting an ulcer every time we get up and read the stock pages of Wall Street, you know, oh boy, down again, another five points. If that's where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be also. But if you begin to see yourself as a channel through which God can pour blessings, then suddenly it isn't ours anymore, it's His and we're His. I just want you to remember, first of all, if we are genuinely born again of the Spirit of God, the first principle we learn is that we're not our own. We have been bought with a price. The three principles of this world are communism says the state owns all. Capitalism says that man owns all. Christianity says God owns all. There's the difference. If God really owns everything, then He owns us. If He's purchased us and redeemed us with His precious blood, we belong to Him. Body, soul, mind, and spirit. We belong to Him. That's the first basic principle we need to learn. Now, if we belong to Him, the second principle automatically follows. Everything that we possess belongs to Him. You follow that? You believe that? 
Well, I'll go back. Some of you haven't nodded your head yet. Maybe you aren't breathing. If when we come to Jesus Christ, He said, I have redeemed you from the curse of the law, that means I've bought you back. I created you and you were mine and you went away from me, so now I've redeemed you. I've bought you back. Now you're mine twice. I created you and I redeemed you. I bought you back, even though you're mine. Now you're mine. Isn't that what it says? All right. Now, a bond slave in the, old, in the New Testament times was one that would come willingly and kneel down to a, a master and have him put a, an earring, a little earring in his ear. And that was a public declaration that he was a willful bond slave the rest of his life, which meant he had no personal rights. He could possess no personal property. He was totally the property of his master. And that's what Paul says, that he is a bond slave of Jesus Christ, a willing bond slave of Jesus Christ. I am not my own. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives through me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Christ living his life to me. I'm his completely. I was nailed to the cross. I died on that cross. I was buried with Jesus Christ and I've risen to walk in newness of life. Now it's Christ in me. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, everything that is around me that I have in my hands or is under my control, it belongs to Him and I'm simply His steward. Lord, what would you have me to do with this? Now remember, whatever is in our possession, we can't take it with us. The Word of God says there in the 6th chapter and the 7th verse that we came into this world, we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. Solomon made a very clear statement when he thought that maybe making money was going to be the answer of life. He said, I, I set my heart to do it, making everything I could make. And he said, I actually said he became the richest man in the world. He was a multi-billionaire. When he got all through, he didn't say what a lot of us would think he'd say. You'd think, hallelujah, I've got it made. I can sit back and wait now and just enjoy life. He said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, I have worked like a fool and made all this money, and I'm going to die, and some bigger fool is going to come and take it and spend it foolishly. He learned the principle. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity under the sun. If we make the motivation and goal of our life to possess possessions for the, for the, just for the fact of having possessions, we've missed it all. But if we can say, Lord, I am your servant, I stand before you, and all that I am or hope to be, I owe it to you, I am yours, now, if you see fit to allow me to be blessed in a material way, I also want you to bless me in a, under, with an understanding of how to use that which you've given to me. Not a reservoir, but a channel, Lord. Time and time again, Beverly and I used to say to Beverly's folks, don't save money to leave to us. Use it as God directs you to use it. God has blessed you and He's given you what you're going to need and when we grow up, as we're growing up, He'll give us what we need. Don't, don't hoard money just to have it so in case anything happens to you, you can give it to us. Just become a channel to the Lord. And I think that we need to learn that principle. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Nothing we possess is ours.